It's one of John Newton's finest hymns. So Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. I won't take time to read that again. You can take a look at it yourself. Luke 6, verses 37 to 42. Let me tell you two stories which I hope will illustrate the kind of heart attitude, because that's what our Lord is after here. This is a heart attitude that he's inculcating, trying to inculcate in us. So these two stories, I hope, will illustrate the kind of heart attitude the Lord condemns and the kind of heart attitude he commends. The first one is the kind of heart attitude that he condemns. So it was, uh, it was a Sunday in the mid-1980s, and uh, I was the pastor of the church. I had begun my ministry in, in that congregation, and uh, I had preached that morning, and we were sitting at lunch uh, at the home of someone in the church. And the lady of the house, she walked imperiously through life, and she surveyed all that was before her and felt that it was her God-given right and responsibility to offer her evaluation of all things that fell beneath her gaze and to give her approval or disapproval on uh, all and sundry. And to be honest, it was almost invariably disapproval. So over lunch, she made such a pronouncement. And she said, there has been no preaching since Dr. Shields. Dr. Shields, of course, was the uh, pastor of Jarvis Street from 1910 to 1955. He was the founder of Toronto Baptist Seminary. And according to her, Since Dr. Shields passed away in 1955, there has been in evangelicalism at large and in Ontario in particular no true preaching, including, I assume, that very morning at our church. Uh, It's not a wonder, someone said later, she struggles to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. She saw the specks in the eyes of all preachers, the, the log of an uncharitable spirit she did not see in her own eye. Jesus says, don't judge. The second story is uh, about the kind of heart attitude the Lord commends. 1662 is the Act of Uniformity in England, and uh, it forces all pastors to lead worship services according to the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. There are people who thought uh, that's not the way to do it. Uh, You're forcing me to do something, I think, unbiblical, so they refused. And as a result, 2,000 what they called nonconformists were kicked out of their churches, including uh, Philip Henry, the father of the more famous Matthew Henry. As a result... They couldn't be in their own church. Philip Henry and his family attended the local Church of England, the local Anglican church, which in itself shows his 
gracious spirit. And at this church, the preaching just really wasn't very good. And, um, but Philip Henry always tried to make the best of it. This is what he said. He said, it is a mercy to have bread, even though it's not of the finest wheat. Well, his statement was charitable. It wasn't harsh or critical. It was frankly very loving and very gracious. This is the kind of heart attitude the Lord commends. Now, the burden of this passage from 37 to 42, it seems to me, is that we should not be judgmental. There are others who look at this passage and think what you have here are unrelated exhortations regarding how kingdom citizens should treat one another. So, they say it's something like this. Don't judge. Uh, Be forgiving. Uh, Be generous. Be wise. Don't be hypocritical, and so on and so on. It seems to me that the, the big point is don't be judgmental, don't be critical. And I say that because verse, verse, verse 37 says don't be judgmental. And, and then from verse 40 to 42, you have the same thing. You just have it now in sort of more expanded fashion. So it seems to me that the, the big point is don't be a judgmental hypocrite. Rather, be forgiving. Be generous in your evaluation of other people, because you see verse 38 is taken from the marketplace, and it's, it's this person who sells perhaps grain, and, and he's generous in the kind of grain that he, he gives to the buyer. So verse 38 speaking about generosity. So be generous in the, your evaluation of people and your evaluation of situations. So don't be judgmental, but be, uh, be forgiving and be generous and, and be wise. Uh, Pharisaical leaders are not wise in the way they lead people. They don't do them any real and lasting good. They're hypocritical, blind guides. So be generous and be wise, and and don't be hypocritical like the person who sees the speck and doesn't see the log in his or her own eye. So don't be a hypocritical critic is, I think, the big point, and the Lord is emphasizing that. That's the great burden. In the church that I was telling you about, where I and that lady attended and worked and served, um, I walked into the Sunday school class one day, walked in the door, and, and there was a man sitting in the back row. He was one of the pillars of the church, and, and he said, Carl, come and sit here. This is, this is critic's row. Oh, never a truer word was spoken. That was part of the ethos of that church. You know, I don't know how much you know about the history of the Baptists, but some Baptists are called battling Baptists. That church was the embodiment of that often pervasive attitude among Baptists. They, They were always spoiling for a fight. Just got their dander up and, you know, let's go at it. So battling Baptists, let's see who we can slay today. So I lasted four years. <laughs> well, to try and come to grips with the kind of heart attitude that our Lord is calling for here, I want to set two principles before you. The first is the necessity of a discerning heart, and the second is the wickedness 
of a critical heart. So we'll start with the necessity of a discerning heart. Jesus says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now, this, especially the first bit, this verse is the evangelical verse of choice when it comes to distorting the Bible. I don't think I've heard of any New Testament verse that's been ripped out of context and misinterpreted and distorted beyond description and recognition more than this verse. So if you say anything negative about anything or anyone, some evangelical somewhere is going to wag his or her finger at you and say, judge not lest ye be judged, and think that that kind of settles everything. The Lord is not saying, don't ever judge. He's not saying, don't ever say anything negative. In Matthew 7 and verse 1, you have the parallel, and Jesus says in verse 1, judge not, just as he does here. And then in verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets. Well, you know, you have to judge, you have to discern, you have to make a judgment between speakers to know who's the true prophet and who's the false prophet. So I'm not going against this verse. I'm not disobeying this verse when I say to you, Joel Osteen is a false prophet. You will not find one ounce of gospel truth in his message. Al Mohler said years ago, um, he said, to people listening, if you spot anything of gospel truth in Joel Osteen's message, please send me the recording. He says... I waited for years. <laughs> Nobody sent him even one recording of a hint of gospel truth. Well, am I disobeying this verse by telling you that Osteen is a false prophet? No, I'm not. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Philippians 3 and verse 2 says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's talking about those who make circumcision a requirement for salvation. He's talking about the Judaizers, these people, these false teachers who dogged his steps throughout the book of Acts. They were false teachers. They preached another gospel, the kind of gospel he referred to in Galatians 1.8. In Galatians, Paul says, concerning those who teach another gospel other than the one he taught, let them be accursed. That word accursed is the word anathema. Let them be condemned. So, no, the Lord Jesus is not saying, never, never say anything negative. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, Test everything and hold fast to what is good. So, we're talking here then about the necessity of a discerning heart. Don't be judgmental, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You've already gotten a sense of what that's all about. But we're talking now about the necessity, the absolute necessity of being discerning, of, of testing everything, of holding to what is good. And we need to do that in a variety of areas. For instance, elders. First 
Peter, First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 says, an overseer must be, and an overseer is another word for an elder, a pastor, an overseer must be, and then you're familiar with that passage, and then you, you know what follows that is a list of virtues and one intellectual gift, the gift of teaching. So he has to be able to teach, and they have to be in his life these virtues. And so he must be. So what you're required to do is when you choose elders, be discerning and be wise and be judging in the right sense. Because don't just make him an elder if, you know, if he's breathing. We need a, we need a warm body to fill the eldership. So, yeah, he's, he's, a lot, he's upright, so make him an elder. No, that's not good enough at all. Um, you need to be a certain type of person, and you need to have these qualifications that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3. Take another area, uh, the matter of church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So examine him. You know the situation, you know the sin, and this particular person, let him be removed from among you. And Paul says, I have already pronounced judgment upon the one who did this this thing. So church discipline is necessary, and most of us have been through it, you may recall, from some years ago. One of the most painful experiences we've ever gone through. One of the most painful experiences I've ever been involved in myself. We disciplined a friend of ours. It's very hard. But you need to do it. It's necessary. It's, it's judging. It's discerning. It's saying, no, this is wrong and it's unacceptable and we have to do something about it. And church discipline then becomes one of the marks of a true church. That's the... The Reformation perspective is that there are marks of a true church. It's the celebration of the ordinances. It's the ministry of the Word. And it's the exercise of church discipline. These are required in a true New Testament church. This involves being discerning, thinking these things through and saying, this is wrong and that's right. It's not judgmental to do that. What about preaching? Acts Chapter 17 and verse 11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If you come to me afterwards and you say, Look, I, I, I see this in the passage, and you said this, and you know what you said doesn't line up with this. I can't get my nose out of joint and say, Well, now how dare you? No, this is what you're required to do. You know, you're, you're supposed to have your Bibles open and, and, and thinking now, okay, now, what I'm hearing, does that accord with what I'm reading? Because I have no right to say anything to you except that I'm explaining the Bible. And if I'm not explaining the Bible, you're under no obligation at all to listen to what I'm saying. So you have to be discerning. You have to listen with discernment. What about salvation? Salvation. First, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So he's saying, effectively, judge yourself. You know, you have to judge a variety of things and discern between good and evil and 
Judge yourself. Is my profession genuine? I mean, am I really called? Am I really a Christian? Am I really born again? Am I forgiven? Am I really going to heaven or am I being presumptuous? Am I leaning on and trusting in things other than Christ? And so examine yourself. I mean, you don't want to sink into hell because you're presumptuous. Because you're just sort of going along with the crowd. You're hanging out with Christians. And you're thinking you're okay because, well, I I mean, the people I spend time with are all Christians. I must be a Christian. I sing the hymns. I know the hymns. I memorize verses and so on and so forth. Everybody in my family is a Christian. I must be a Christian. You may not be a Christian. Make sure you're a Christian, Peter says. Examine yourself. Be discerning. Ask the Lord. And make, if you're not sure, talk to somebody. And especially if you're not sure, talk to the Lord. And ask Him to save you. Yes, so when it, when it comes to salvation, the most important thing of all, make sure you're judging yourself. Make sure you're discerning. What about support? You have to be careful where you give your money. You have to be careful what ministry you support. If anyone comes to you, says John in 2 John verses 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Not saying, you know, don't say hello or don't invite him in to, to explain the truth to him. I'd happily do that with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or whoever comes to my door. But what he's saying is don't support that. Don't put them up. Because in those days, a lot of the, the teachers are traveling teachers. And there are no very few inns or hotels to stay in. So they would stay with people. And Well, don't support that ministry by extending hospitality to these false teachers. Well, the same is true of us. Don't send your money to... Oh, to False teachers today? So, the Lord Jesus says in John 7, 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, it's the need for a discerning heart. Kirk Wellam and I had a professor in our first year at Ontario Bible College, um, and he said to us, I'm here to put some of you into the ministry and to keep some of you out. And um, that's the kind of professor that you need at a school like that. Um, Because not everybody who goes to seminary should be in seminary. Some seminaries let people in to come and study for the ministry simply and solely because they could write a check. Well, no, some of them shouldn't be in the ministry because... Sometimes what happens is they end up in churches and do irreparable damage. So be discerning. Now, there's a lesson here. Because the key to discernment, we want to be discerning. The key to discernment is to be familiar with the Word of God and familiar with the throne of God. To put it another way, you have to be in the Word and you have to be in prayer. To put it another way, you have to walk with God. You have to be Enoch-like and walk closely with the Lord. 
And the result is then, as you pray and as you're familiar with the Scriptures and biblical principle and biblical wisdom then is inculcated in your soul, uh, you can make wise decisions. You can arrive at sound judgments. But it's as you walk with the Lord, as you're in the Word and as you are a man or a woman of prayer, that that happens and you can have a discerning heart. Well, to be truthful, the fruit of this kind of thing, of Christians being in the Word and at the throne, the fruit of that was evident to me very recently when I listened to what the board put forward and when I listened to the way the congregation received it. So the recommendation from the board and the reception from the church To me, that manifested on both sides this kind of thing, this kind of discerning heart. You need discernment because things aren't aren't black and white. Things aren't crystal clear, and you need to be able to discern. And it seemed to me that that's what I could see in the men on the board as I listened to them and the people in the congregation as I was with you. That's what I saw, and well, thank God for that. People who are seeking to walk with God, and as a result, there's a discerning heart there as you try to follow the Lord. Well, thank God for that. I don't say that to puff you up. I say that simply as a matter of what I consider to be a fact, and a fact for which God receives glory. So there you have the necessity of a discerning heart. Secondly, the wickedness of a critical heart. The wickedness of a critical heart. So verse 37 says, Judge not and you'll not be judged. Condemn not and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Now verse 40, a disciple um, is not... uh, Verse 41, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother... Uh, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, your eye when, you, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. Oh, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in uh, your brother's eye. So let's talk first about the manifestation of a critical heart. How does this show up? How does it show up? These, these people that our Lord is describing here and uh, buttonholing, as it were, these are people, their critical faculty is just very finely tuned. They have this unerring ability to find fault. In the twinkling of an eye, they can spot your problem. And, um, you know, it's their calling to let you know, because probably you don't know. So they will let you know. Years ago, I was at someone's house, uh, someone you don't know. And uh, I was at the door, and I, was, I slipped on my running shoes without tying the laces. I didn't have these, these rather stylish, tasseled shoes that I wear now. But I had running shoes, and I didn't... Uh, I slipped them on without tying the laces. So the lady of the house, uh, she looked down 
She was very short, but she somehow always managed to look down. And she looked down and sniffed the way some people do, you know. Hmm. Hmm. And she says, looks at my shoes and looks at the untied state of them, and she says, just like the kids. So you, you, <laughs> you don't need a lot of words to cut somebody down. Well, that's the kind of person the Lord's talking about. What are they like? Well, they're fault finders. As I said, they can spot your faults, and they, they assume you don't know your faults, and they assume that like, it's really important enough that they need to tell you about your faults, that they feel to be their calling. I, I had a fellow who, he would regularly take me out for lunch just to explain, because you don't want to just do it quickly after church, because, you know, you might not get all the details. So he'd say, girl, we got to go for lunch. I think, oh, <laughs> I hope it's a good restaurant, because I'll be having humble pie, too. <laughs> um, and uh, so, because, again, they, it's their calling. It's, it's the mission. It's the mandate they've been given from heaven. And they need to let you know about, about your fault. Some people are like, you know, Barnabas, uh, they want to encourage. These people feel that it's important to expose faults. And they're impelled to render their negative verdict on uh, uh, on, on any number of, of aspects of your life. Secondly, they, they assume the worst. They assume the worst. They put the worst possible construction on actions that they see. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love hopes all things. Love, what that means is love puts the best construction on things. Love puts the best construction on things. Like, I'll give you an example, David Robinson. David Robinson, I missed an appointment with David Robinson a week ago. So David wrote to me and said, this is what he said, I, I quote, I'm so sorry that it didn't work to have coffee today. <laughs> I'm so sorry that it didn't work to have coffee today. He didn't write and say, I'm so sorry you're such a terrible friend. He could have said that and been, you know, not far off the mark, but he said, I'm so sorry that it didn't work to have coffee today. See, that's putting the best possible construction on it until you know the opposite. Uh, you know, put the best construction on it. And so uh, the critical person uh, will not put the most charitable construction on the situation. David chose not to assume the worst of me. Thirdly, they will impute terrible motives. These, these people the Lord is talking about here with the, the log here, they will, they will impute terrible motives. It's, it's really connected with the previous point, and they'll assume the worst construction of the situation and add to it, they'll assume that they are privy to what's going on in your heart, which they're not, but they'll assume they are, and then they'll assume the worst motive for that situation. And you know, you'll want to say, oh, don't you know me better than that? But uh, no, they're, they're critical by nature, and so they assume a negative 
motive. So never, never impute evil motives to an action unless the evidence for that is incontrovertible and irresistible. And then what else? Well, they'll, they'll write you off. You know, you'll make a mistake. You'll sin in some way, and they will eliminate you from, from the ranks of faithful Christian servants because of one or two things that you did. You know, this happens, you did this, and then that's it for you. You're done. They'll also write off groups. They'll write off whole groups of Christians and churches. And I heard someone say recently, this is someone you don't know. And um, he said, well, I, I, I won't join that group of churches because, uh, because of the bad experience I had with one of the churches. Massive group. I won't join the group because of what we experienced at one of them. Ah, that's harsh, and that's harsh and critical and uncharitable, and it's not right. And then, you know, the, their vision is, is curious. They have great eyesight in some ways. They have great eyesight, and they can, see, they can see the little speck in your eye. How do you have that kind of eyesight? They can, they'll spot it a mile away. It's amazing. And they're zealous, so they'll hack away at it to try and get rid of it. Um, but they can't see, the Lord has a sense of humor, they can't see the log over their own eye. So I knew, uh, I knew a lady who was, she was deeply upset that um, a particular young man, you don't know these people, a particular young man didn't wear a suit to church on Sundays. And she availed herself of every opportunity to let me know just how terrible that was. So eventually I said to her that, you know, he doesn't have any money. Maybe you should buy him a suit. So she stopped talking to me about it. Um, I don't think she changed her opinion, but she just felt that uh, her righteous stance wasn't making any impression on me. So her, her vision was curious because she could see his sin if sin it was, and it wasn't. But she could see his sin, but she couldn't see her unwillingness to help. And that's the way these people are. Well, I, I could go on and on, but I think you understand. And these are some of the manifestations of a critical heart. Now let's think about the root of the critical heart, the root of it. Just turn for a moment to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, and we see, well, we see a little vignette of this. You see on the one hand this kind of person, and then you see someone who's righteous. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the one who exalts himself, well, that's this critical fellow. The Pharisee is the holy one. That's what the word means. And, and the pride that is stirred up by his holiness, because he does all kinds of stuff that manifests his holiness. And the pride that's stirred up by that is at the root of the critical heart. Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm, you know, cut above. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but not like them. And in fact, you know, I'm pretty good. (laughs) But I do this and this and this and this. Never say that. But, oh. See, critical people are almost invariably righteous people. For them, everything is just so. They're, they're as straight as a rifle barrel. But rifle barrels are empty, and, and they're empty. They're empty of grace and love and gentleness and kindness, and they're hard to be around because they'll cut you down. So pride, you see, then will blind us to our own sin. That's what's happened with the Pharisees. Pride blinds us to our own sin, and pride heightens our critical faculty. It heightens our ability to see. It gives us 20-20 vision when it comes to the faults of others. Because when you see the faults of others and label them and announce them and parade them, you feel kind of better about yourself. So pride's at the root of this. That's why David could rage against the sin of the man described in Nathan's parable. There's there's pride at the root of that. David is just incensed. That man has to die, that man who did that. And then, like a hammer blow, the words of Nathan, you're the man. And by the grace of God, David sees it. Thank God for that. And he repents. But you see... It's, it's pride that blinds us to our own sin and heightens our awareness of the sins of others. And that's the soil in which this critical spirit grows. We don't want that. The Pharisees, well, they tend to be hard, don't they? And they're, uh, they're not quick to forgive because, you know, we have standards. And they're not generous in their evaluation of people Uh, That David Robinson was generous in his evaluation of me. Overly generous, but generous. Now, they're not like that, these Pharisees. uh, Holiness, you see, holiness. We stand for holiness. Well, of course we do, but, you know, we're sinners saved by grace. And, well, we need mercy. And that's that's why these Pharisees were... Blind guides. Jesus calls them blind guides because they were full of pride and harsh and critical. Well, God deliver us from being people like that. And God help us to be different. 
Well, the question now is, we've seen something about the manifestations and something about the root of this kind of critical spirit. So now, in conclusion, the question is, how can we be different? How can we make sure that we're not like that? We don't want to be like that. We want to be Barnabas-like. So how can we avoid being like that? How can we avoid being critical and judgmental and harsh? Let me suggest one, two, three, four, five, six things, briefly. Okay? First, look at your sin. I listen to the blues sometimes, and there's a blues song that says, before you accuse me, take a look at yourself. So, so that's the first step. So take a look at your own sin. In Matthew 18, verses 23 and following, Jesus talks about a man who owes 10,000 talents. It's all about forgiveness. Peter is asked, how many times do I forgive? Seven times? Up to seven times? And so on. Well, then Jesus talks about this, and he says, there's a man who owed 10,000 talents. So if you're a You're a worker, it'll take you 20 years to earn a talent. You work for 20 years, you'll earn a talent. So if you owe 10,000 talents, it's 200,000 years. What's the Lord saying? This is an unrealistic scenario, but his point is, you owe more than you can possibly pay. You owe a debt you cannot pay. You, you, this great burden of sin on your shoulders is a weight you cannot carry. It's a burden you cannot bear. You have been forgiven all. Don't then sit in judgment on someone else. Don't sit Stand and look down your nose at other people. Don't walk imperiously through life dispensing your verdict. Why? Because you are a forgiven sinner, and not just a forgiven sinner, but forgiven 10,000 talents of of sin. So look at your own sin. You're not in a position to look down on others. None of us is. Secondly, look at your Savior. So look at your sin and look at your Savior. So you sit at the foot of the cross and see if from there you can also sit in judgment on others. J.C. Rao said, Terribly black must be that guilt for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Your sin... If Jesus only had to pay for your sin, just your sin, not the sin of a multitude that no man can number, but your sin, he would have had to go to the cross. Your sin requires Jesus on the cross as propitiation. That's what it requires. Your sin. Well, you know, you look at the Savior then. If that's what my Savior did for me, well, how gracious and loving and kind and forgiving I ought to be to others. And then look at your God. 1 Peter 5 and verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
Look at your God. Isaiah, in the providence of God and the, the wisdom of God and the kindness of God, frankly, is brought in Isaiah 6 into the presence of the thrice holy God. He sees a vision of God, and his response to that is, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. So when you see God, we'll see him in the Holy Scriptures. When you see God, well, you have a hard time sitting in judgment on others. You have a hard time being critical of others. You have a hard time uh, being harsh in your evaluation of others. You have a hard time focusing on the faults of others because when you see God, your heart is broken over your own sin. Your heart is also exalted because of his grace, but it's broken because of your sin. So look at your own sin and and look at your Savior, and look at your God, and, and look at forgiveness. I mean, look at what you've been forgiven. A Titanic sits 13,000 feet underwater. 13,000 feet under the ice-cold waters of the Atlantic. Our sin, according to Micah 7, verses 18 and 19, our sin is cast into the oceans deeper than that, deeper than Titanic. It's harder to get to our sin than to get to Titanic, and you know how dangerous that is. The deepest parts of the ocean, as far as we know, are the Mariana Trenches. That's a, that's a, a trench east of the Mariana Islands in, in the Pacific. It's about... Uh, 1,500 miles long, this trench. The deepest part is about 6.85 miles, 36,000 feet underwater. I I read, I didn't know this, but I read that somebody named uh, Jacques Picard, not Jean-Luc, he's actually not real, but, but Jacques Picard, in 1960, he and his friend Don Walsh, this is fascinating, they, they, they made a thing called a Bathys, Bathys scape, and, and they went down 35,800 feet. I thought it was fascinating myself. They, that's, so not, I mean, not to Mariana Trench level, but that's a little deeper, but they went that far down. And they had 200,000 tons of water on top of them. So this little bubble, and they've got 200,000 tons of water pressing down upon them. How that thing didn't get destroyed, I don't know. They did a good job. In 1960. So what David is saying, is, what the prophet is saying, is that God's sin, he put it there. He put it there at the depths of the ocean. That's what God has done with your sin. He's he's removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12. That's what God has done with your sin. He's removed it as far as east is from the west. Now, how far is east from west? You know that they never meet. So if if you go east and I go west... And, and I don't mean go like this and then go around and then we meet on the other side of the world. 
No, you just go straight. You go straight east. Is that east? Yeah. And then you, I go straight west. And so we leave the planet to go keep going. So we just keep going. East and west, never the twain shall meet. And God says, that's how far he's taken your sin away from you. Well, when you start to think about these things, I could go on and on here because there's all kinds of verses like this. You start to think about that. What has God done with my sin, this massive sin, this 10,000 talents of sin? What's he done with that? Well, he's removed it that far from you. He's put it behind his back where he won't see it. He's promised he'll never bring it up again, and so on and so on and so on. He's erased your debt from the ledger, never to be returned. That, when he's done that, it's, it's hard to be critical of others, isn't it? It's hard not to be gracious when you have that kind of thing at the forefront of your mind. So uh, look at your forgiveness. Then thirdly, uh, uh, six or seven, I think, look at, your, look at suffering. Look at suffering. Because when people are critical, when they're harsh and judgmental, Christians suffer. Christians suffer. Scathing criticism, insensitive comments, unloving indictments. Spurgeon suffered greatly at the hands of, of Christians. Uh, Tom Nettles, who was a speaker at Kerry Conference years and years ago, said um, he's a massive, definitive, brilliant book on Spurgeon. He says Spurgeon had to endure a culture of criticism and was subject to slander and betrayal. Spurgeon says of himself, he says, for myself, I can say that were it not for the love of Christ constraining me, this hour might be the last that I should preach, so far as the ease of the thing being con- is concerned. Sometimes my heart has been shaken by disgrace, shame, and contempt, for many a brother of whom I thought better things has reviled me. Many a Christian has turned on his heels away from me because I have been misrepresented to him and he has hated me without a cause. We, we think of Spurgeon as a great hero and a great example and a great preacher, and such he was. But he was a great sufferer. And much of his suffering came at the hands of Christians. And much of his suffering involved harsh and insensitive and cruel criticism. Now, the Christian life, you know, is hard enough. Let's not add to it by cruel and insensitive words. And then lastly, look at the apostle. Look at the apostle. The apostle Paul was a great encourager. He was a Barnabas. And uh, you read, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 3. Uh, This is Paul saying, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our, our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You read the whole of 1 Thessalonians and you find Paul to be just, he's an encourager. If he came here, he'd encourage you. You'd walk away with your spirit soaring, your soul just lifted. It's not that he wouldn't rebuke and challenge but he would do it in such a way as to encourage you, to urge you on your way. You know, you're running the race. 
and you've stumbled and you've fallen. And he's come and he's, he's lifted you up. He's dusted you off. And he said, no, you can do it. You just keep going. Press on. There's the, there's the finishing line. It's over there. You can do it. God will give you grace. And he, he says, go ahead, go ahead. That's, the kind, that's what First Thessalonians is about. He says, I see. I see these strengths in you that God has worked. I see this, this faith and this love and this endurance. Now you just keep going. That's the way Paul is. He's an encourager. Do we want to be like that? We don't want people to dread talking to us. Oh, oh you, you know, you come and you're just, you know, are you, are you going to say something? <laughs> no, you don't want to be having that kind of effect on people. We want to be an encourager and, uh, and strengthen people. Again, remember, I'm not saying we don't say hard things. Not saying that at all. Sometimes it's the, it's the way of cowardice to not say a hard thing, not the way of love. But um, we've already acknowledged that. But now let's be an encourager, just like Paul. Well, we want to be imitators then of, of Paul, the way he was of Christ, and pray that the Lord will help us not to fall into this kind of thing, not to be in the grip of this kind of pattern, but be saints who, by the grace of God, benefit and encourage and lift up our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us, thankful for your kindness to us, thankful for uh, your word. Pray that you'll give us grace so that we might uh, hear it and receive it and respond to it as you want us to and live in such a way as brings honor and glory to you and blessing to all around. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.